Northside Baptist Church. Hey, and uh, I have done it again. Uh, once football season is over, maybe my voice will get a rest. But uh, so anyway, 
Uh, welcome, welcome, and especially if you're some of our guests, we love to, 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 excuse me, we would love for you to fill out a little piece of paper, there's a, there's a tear out in your bulletin, uh, fill that out and place it in the offering plate or, or put it at the, or give it to one of the ministers at the end of the service, we'd like to just know who you are and, and how we can minister to you, uh, and, and glad that our home folks are here as well. Now one thing I want to mention, just, just uh, some of you are aware, Miss, uh, Miss Margaret Coggin was uh, taken to the, the hospital this, this morning uh, in Sunday school. She was having a little bit of problems, some, some blurriness in her vision. Uh, Lindsay checked her out and uh, made sure everything was, was okay just kind of immediately, and she seems to be doing all right. Uh, she had more compassion and mercy on her than she does when I get sick, but, um, but we just do, do need to remember her in, in prayer. She's going to get everything checked out, make sure everything is okay. But... Um, uh, so we'll be, you know, be sure that you uh, pray for her. Uh, but right now, take this time to greet one another and, and find somebody and shake their hand and let them know that you're excited to be in the church this morning.
for this day, giving us to come to church and learn more about you and worship you. Lord, please bless these tithes and offerings to help them to further your kingdom. In your name, amen. So highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Yeah. 
again. Thank you, choir. And ask our children if they would come forward, please. Our time of children's sermon together. All right. How are you doing this morning? Good, good. I showered last night and this morning. What's up? You guys didn't want to sit next to me? Okay. Hey, uh, just got a just got a question for you. Just got a question for you. Who am I? Am I know? Pastor BJ. Pastor BJ. Dad. Hey. Okay. Anything else? All right. A person. Yep. An engineer. Well, I tried. Um. But look, this right here says something different. This doesn't say BJ. And it doesn't say pastor. Does anybody have any idea what this is? First of all, what is this? Just tell me. It's a car. It's a license. It's a, it's a driver's license, right? Um, it says I get to drive commercials. And so it says right here it's got my name. Anybody want to try to read that? Go ahead. Bobby Wayne Cobb. There's more. Junior. That's it. Junior. Bobby Wayne Cobb Jr. Wow, what a southern name, right? Bobby Wayne, Bobby Wayne. Yep. And so um, this says this says that my name is Bobby. Okay, but you guys said my name was BJ. And then you said my name was Dad, right? Well, listen, we all maybe have different things that we're called sometimes, right? Because I bet some of you have your real names, but then you have nicknames too, right? Can you share some of your names and nicknames with me? What you got? E is short for Eli. There you go. All right. What else? Hannah Banana. Okay. I should This is This is kind of scary. All right. What's your name? Tell us now. Elena, and you have a nickname or something you... Lena of Avalor. Oh, okay. Yeah, some people at school call you that. Yep. Buggy. Did I say that right? Okay, you have? Elizabeth. Elizabeth. And then sometimes people call you Lizzie. That's right. Yeah, so we have different things that we're called. But, you know, some of you are also, you could be called sons or daughters, okay? Just like you call me dad and, and Miss Lindsay, I'm her husband, okay? And to the church here, I'm, I'm a pastor. And so we have different things that we're known by. Well, listen. We just sang, or, or the, uh, well, we did. We, we sang a song that said this, praise that wonderful name of Jesus and preach the wonderful name of Jesus. We talked about his name a lot in that song. And then the choir sang a special that talked about the name of Jesus. But listen, listen, God is known by a lot of different names, okay? But I want to be careful. They're all names that come out of the, come out of the Bible. Some things that, that we call Jesus uh, wonderful Counselor. You ever heard that? You ever heard Jesus being called the Wonderful Counselor or Mighty God or King of Kings or Lord of Lords? Okay. Um, what about what about Emmanuel? You ever heard Emmanuel? What does that mean? Anybody know what that means? Emmanuel? Do you know what it means? It doesn't mean never ending. It means God is with us. Okay. So there are, there are a lot of different things that that we that, that a lot of different names of God that are in the Bible. And, and they all mean something maybe just a little different for us.
Okay, sometimes God is our provider, sometimes he's our protector, sometimes he's our salvation, and that's what we think about when we call the name of Jesus, okay? So I just, I was just taken aback by the fact, we talked about the name of Jesus a lot in our music this morning, and we all have names too, but the most important name that we can know, and it's important that we know that name, is the name of Jesus, and that we get a chance to call God our Father because of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for who you are. I thank you for your, just that I know the name of Jesus. And not that just, just that I know the name, but I know the person of Jesus, and I know him. Lord, that's my prayer for everyone in here, that they don't just know the name, but they know the person. So God, teach us. Make our hearts uh, renewed. Let us go forward in your spirit. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Blessed Savior, we adore Thee, we Thy love and grace proclaim. Thou art mighty, Thou art holy, glorious is Thy matchless name. Glorious, glorious, glorious is Thy name, O Lord. 
Curtis. I want to ask if you would go ahead and be seated, please. Uh, you know, a few months ago, we were sharing with you some of our different ministries from our church, and we hadn't done that in a couple of months, but this morning, I want to ask uh, Phyllis Chappelle and Dee Dee Smith to come, and they're going to share a little bit about this cancer care ministry. Maybe you've heard about it already, maybe you haven't, but listen to, to them as they share this, uh, this really this new ministry that we're looking to launch here at Northside. diagnosed with cancer was in 2009. It was breast cancer. I went through chemo, I went through radiation, several surgeries, and life was good. Two months shy of the five-year mark, being cancer-free, which is when you can get insurance again, yes, I was diagnosed again. This time it was stage four, metastatic, which means it had traveled to other parts of your body, and it was HER2 new positive, which is a very aggressive cancer. Needless to say, when they um, told me that, my first thing was, well, when can I get back to work? And I will never forget the charge nurse and the doctor coming down my level and saying, Miss Smith, I don't think that you understand. You need to go home and you need to put your affairs in order. At the time, my daughter was in 10th grade. By the grace of God, I ended up at CTCA. And when I got there and they looked over everything, they said, what's your goal? What's my goal? Duh, to live know what's your specific goal. Everybody wants to live. And well, I would love to see my daughter graduate. And May 26, 2017, I got to see my daughter graduate. She's now a sophomore in college. And um, I can't tell you, I'm not supposed to be here. Long story short, all of my doctors have said that there is no medical reason why I'm here. There's no medical reason why the treatments they gave me worked. They called me a walking miracle. And I am shaking. <laughs> I have been anointed with oil. Doctors pray 
rest of my life every three weeks, and that's okay, um, as long as there's life. I struggled. Um, it was a long road. Mercy. It was a really long road. Um, the radiation burned me so severely that it, it burned was um, wrapped around my vena cava that goes into your heart and your jugular. That's why they can't operate. But um, I forgot where I was at. I do that a lot. Of I'd like to say it's chemo brain, but I'm also getting older. <laughs> what was I saying? It was important. Really, guys, what was I saying? The last thing I said. Oh, I remember now. My favorite thing in the whole world to do, I mean, since I was little, was singing. Sing, sing, sing. Happy, sad, anything. I cannot sing because it damaged my um, vocal cords. When I struggled, struggled with the purpose, with my purpose. What is my purpose, God? Why am I here? Why am I living? You know, things aren't so great. Why am I living? I was depressed. Y'all didn't give up on me, though. People came by and tried to cheer me up. And I found my purpose, I believe, because God used my cancer and my story. I cannot tell you how many people have been able to share Jesus with. It's, it's just an open doorway. And I'm going to let Phyllis tell you. That's, that's the why. That's the why. God laid it on my heart that there are so many single family that's not been touched by cancer. And <clears throat> let me tell you, if they don't know Jesus, if they don't know God, when you hear that you have a disease that could kill you, they're at least willing to listen.
in July, Dee Dee called me and asked me if I would go to uh, the Cancer Treatment Centers of America and attend a class with her on how to start a cancer care ministry. Um, that I, you know, it's one of those things. I didn't feel totally comfortable with the idea, but I thought after all she's been through, it's the, you know, one of the least I could, things I could do to, to help to support her. So in late August, we went and we attended a two-day class, um, and it was just, it was really fascinating to see everything they do there and how they approach it. Um, if y'all don't know, the Cancer Treatment Centers of America has a very biblically-based focus behind everything they do. And they have launched hundreds of these ministries throughout the country. The class we attended had 41 attendees from 27 churches in 10 states. And that particular class, I think Washington State was the furthest away someone had come. And these are churches that have anywhere from a double handful of attendees to mega churches. Um, and so, you know, I just wanted to say that if you're out there and you're thinking, yeah, I'd kind of like to help, but I don't feel really comfortable with the idea of working with people with cancer, nobody does, <laughs> including the two of us up here today. Um, but the CTCA has wonderful resources. There's just a ton of stuff that they will provide you to, to provide us, to, to help us to meet this challenge. Uh, and it is a ministry of hope. They, they call their ministry Our Journey of Hope. Because that's really what it's all about as you're working with people is giving them hope, hope in Christ, hope in the future. Um, and, and we need folks that are willing to help in, in big ways as a, a, a team member or what they call a cancer care minister. Uh, and Dee Dee and I, their job is to help equip you to do this. And it starts with a series. They have eight classes. We're going to try to do it in four sessions and be respectful of, of everybody's time. But we want to do from the middle of October to the middle of November. Um, in addition to that, the, the people to be on the team, we need folks that are willing to help in small ways. Folks that are willing to write cards or make meals or get somebody to the doctor or make a hospital visit. Uh, and nothing is too small. If you're sitting there thinking, well, I'm only really available on Tuesdays, that's great. Let us know that. We'll find a Tuesday you can help. Um, but if you'd like to learn more about the training and the ministry, we're going to have a very short meeting today, just immediately following the service in the fellowship hall, and give you a little bit more information. Should take no more than about 15 minutes. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you both, ladies. <clears throat> when they came and talked to me about this a, a few weeks ago, uh, and, and I don't know if they were looking for my mission or my blessing or, or whatever but um, I just thought man, why not uh, certainly we know folks in our church we know folks in our church are, are dealing with uh, this disease of cancer and unless you've you've been through that and, and um, either had it yourself or had a close family member that has uh, struggled through it you, you don't really understand what all it takes to, to minister to them and so I could think of, uh, I really couldn't, couldn't think of anyone else that could, could lead this ministry that way, and so absolutely, and thank you for that, and I would encourage you if you're interested to, uh, to see them today or to contact them uh, and let them, let them know about uh, your interest there. We will continue in the book of Acts, and so if you have your Bibles, if you will turn to Acts chapter 17, we're going to try to finish this chapter today. Um, <clears throat> Six months ago, we began our journey in the book of Acts, and we kind of went through. At one point, we were clipping along about a chapter a week, but chapter 17, there's just a lot there. We could camp out there a lot longer, but I'm going to try to get through it in these 
these uh, last these last two weeks and this week, these three weeks. So if you have your Bibles and you've turned to Acts chapter 17, I would ask you if you are able to please stand. I'll begin reading Acts 17 verse 22. Then Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you speak through it today to our hearts. Speak through me. Give me a message and let us have open hearts and open ears to hear from you today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. I just want to start off with just a logical fact that when I first heard it, it took me aback for a little bit, but it just makes sense when you see this statement, this statement here. When you are deceived, you do not know it. When you are deceived, you do not know it. I mean, that's the essence of what it means to be deceived, right? When you are deceived, you don't know it. So how do you overcome that? I don't think anyone wants to be deceived. Well, the only way that we can really overcome it is for someone else to come in and enlighten us to the fact that we were deceived and to share the truth with us. On the front of your bulletin, you see this, you, you, you see this, uh, there's a series of symbols here that, that represent faiths throughout our world. And if you look closely, maybe you can see it spells the word contradict. Contradict. This is just an idea that may, maybe you've seen the bumper sticker that says coexist. Coexist. And in my mind, I think, well, okay, for now, but when it talks about eternity, we're going to be separated. There's going to be a separation. The reason I, that I like the word contradict is just basically this. They can all be wrong, or one can be right, and the others are wrong, but we can't all be right. Okay, if, if, if I gave you a multiple choice test, a mathematics test, a multiple choice, 2 plus 2 equals, and I gave you four answers, and they were 10, 20, 15, and negative 6, they were all wrong choices. They can all be wrong, okay, but they can't all be right. So that's the, 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 the kind of the premise behind this today as Paul is going. And we, we looked last week, he, he looked up and he saw the people in Athens, and he saw all the idols in Athens. And it says he was troubled in his heart, and so he went down to the synagogues, and he proclaimed Jesus. He proclaimed the Messiah in the synagogues, and he went to the marketplace, and he proclaimed Jesus there. And as he begins talking about this Jesus guy, as he's, he's telling this, these, these stories, and he's talking about a new type of religion that, maybe they, that they have not heard of before. They finally got him and took him to the Areopagus. Now, some people will say that this is on Mars Hill, and that's what, that's what Areopagus is all about, Mars Hill. Now, was he actually on the hillside? Perhaps. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. But also, that, that name came to be not just a location, a geographic location, but it came to be synonymous with the people who gathered at that location. It doesn't really matter to me if he was standing on the hill or not. What's very clear is he was in front of this group of people who came together, and they were philosophers. They discussed the things of this world. They, they, they discussed philosophical ideas, and they discussed religion all the time. Paul then looked around, and, and, and he was able to see the idols, and he used this one, the unknown God. Paul used this idol set aside to the unknown God to address their misconceptions of God, their misconceptions of life and death and the afterlife. You see, what they thought the unknown God was just one among equals. 
Well, we have all these, this plethora of other gods, and so now we have an unknown God, and he's just one among many. But Paul knew something that they didn't know. Paul knew Deuteronomy chapter 6, he knew this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. He knew that there was one God who reigned supreme over, over all of the universe. Now listen, here's, here's, a, here's a truth for you. It wasn't just 2,000 years ago. Religious people today worship a multitude of gods. Even, listen, even people who, they say they're atheistic. That means that no God. They're, they're, there's a worship of something, maybe self. Religious people today worship a multitude of gods. And whether they acknowledge it or not, among those gods stands the unknown God. What I mean by that is not the same thing that the people in Athens thought. Not just a God that's among other gods. Not just a God that's equal with all these other gods. But we know something that they don't. We know the Lord, and we know that he is God. We know what they don't know. We know the Lord. And it's not something, just like I told the children, it's not just an acknowledgement with my mind, but it's something that I'm convicted with and I give my life to. We know the Lord, and they don't. We know the Lord, and that he is God. But listen, there's, like I said, religious people today worship a multitude of gods. And whether we acknowledge it or not, among those gods is an unknown God. And listen, I think this is true for those outside the church but it also might be true for those inside the church because even though we come to church every week, even though we may read our Bibles, it's still possible that we don't know God. It's possible that we don't know God. I just want you to hold on to that thought, and we'll revisit it a little bit later. Let's look at, let's look at the, the two groups of people that were specifically addressed here in uh, in God's word, it, it talked about two groups of folks who would join up and, and discuss the philosophies. It talks about, first of all, the Epicureans. It says that the, 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 the Epicureans and the Stoics were there. So who are these people? Well, the, the Epicureans, they were, I don't even know what this means, but it was, they were philosophers of the garden. Sounds great. They had green thumbs, perhaps. They were philosophers of the garden. Uh, they were founded by Epicurus. But here's what we need to know about the Epicureans they considered the gods, all of these gods, to be very distant from them. So they, the, the gods maybe were more powerful, the gods were, but they, they were far off. They didn't have personal interaction. They took no interest in and had no influence on human affairs. The gods are over there and humans are over here. They're distant. And they would emphasize, so, so how do they live this out? How do they live their life now? They emphasize chance, escape, and an enjoyment of pleasure. I think you could probably sum it up in a, a, a phrase today. You think Burger King. That is, have it your way. That's the way that we live our life. The gods are over there and we're over here and, and they're far off. They don't have anything to do with us and so we just live life however we want to live life. And that's, that's really, that's, that, that boils it down and it may be an oversimplification, but that's what I need sometimes to understand things. And so Epicureans, have it your way. But what about the Stoics? Now, here's another group of people, another group of philosophers. Well, they were philosophers of the porch. I like that better. I rest on my porch after work in the garden. But philosophers of the porch, I really don't know what that means either. And they were founded by a man named Zeno. But here's what we need to know about the Stoics. They acknowledged a supreme God, but it was a pantheistic God. Pantheistic God means that it's a God that's everything is God. So there's a God 
that's in nature, and now that's not too far from what we as Christians will believe God is real, reveals himself in nature, but God is not nature, because the very essence of that, God is super nature, he's supernatural, okay, he created, we'll talk about that in just a minute, he's created, um, he has created everything, but they were pantheistic, that, that's that, their, their belief in a pantheistic God, and then so they were to live in harmony with nature and reason, regardless of how painful it may be, because all of this is wrapped up, again, in this idea that everything really is God. Uh, if, if you want to think about it this way, maybe, uh, one way to think about a pantheistic God, and, and I like watching these movies, but the Star Wars movies and the Force, there's a good Force and an evil Force in everything, and you've got to try to get the Force, and that's why you can move things with your hands and, uh, or move things with your mind. So a lot of people move things with their hands, BJ, way to go. But you can move things with your minds, okay? Um, but that, that's really what it means to, to believe in a pantheistic God. They were to live in harmony with nature and reason. And then they developed the self-sufficiency. Their, their emphasis in their daily life was to emphasize uh, fatalism, submission, and the endurance of pain. So a little bit different, or quite a bit different from the Epicureans. How can we, how can we, uh, how can we summarize their, their beliefs? Again, oversimplification perhaps, but Stoics, hey, it is what it is. So deal with it. So deal with it. It just, whatever happens, happens, and you just got to figure it out and move on. And that's kind of where their thoughts lead. So we have these two groups of people, and Paul, is, is he understands this. He knows who he's talking to. He understands, he understands the, even their, their writings, because later, in the middle of his sermon, he talks about, he says, even your poets have said this. And he would use things that were common to them. Remember, when he goes to the synagogue, when he goes to the synagogue, he talks about Jesus as Messiah. Now he's standing on Mars Hill, and he's got philosophers who come, and he's using what they know to share Jesus. He's not talking necessarily about Jesus as Messiah. It doesn't mean he's not Messiah, but he's saying there's an unknown God. Let me tell you about an unknown God. There's a God that you don't know. And then he will talk about later, he, 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 will, he will say, and your poets that you have studied. Let me tell you what they've said. Now let me tell you how that fits in and, and who this Jesus character really is. But what specifically did Paul proclaim to them? That's what we want to get to today. What did, what did Paul proclaim to them? First of all, let's read verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in shrines made by hands. First of all, what we see in verse 24 is this. God is creator of the universe. God is creator of the universe. That may not be anything revolutionary for us today, but we must not ever forget that. God is a personal creator of everything. If you, if you open up your Bibles and you begin reading in Genesis, you see, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. I, I happen to believe Scripture, okay? I happen to believe Scripture and everything that it says about God as creator. God was there, and there was nothing else. He transformed nothing into something. He transformed nothing into everything, and he spoke it into being. And on the very, on, on, on the very last part of creation, as he has spoken everything into creation, he takes his hands, and he forms man out of the dust of the earth and breathes into him, breathes into him life. I believe what the Bible has to say, but what if, what if you're talking with someone 
who doesn't understand biblical authority and rejects and mistrusts what the Bible has to say? Where do you go from there? There's a, there's a series that, that I love, and I've shared with the, the youth a, a couple of different times. It's called True You. Uh, just the letter U, like university, True You. It's, it's, it's produced by Focus on the Family. It's a part of their truth project. Uh, but I, I love that series and because he, 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 he says, okay, let's, let's just let's step back for a minute. Yes, we affirm biblical scripture is, is honest and true in and, 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 and every way. But what if you're talking about someone that doesn't trust scripture? Where, where do you begin? Here is this, again, this is like a 12-part series in, the, in a DVD, but I want to try to summarize just, just a couple of different arguments for you here. Um, so here we go. There is a cosmological argument. That's a, that's a big fancy word, and it doesn't have anything to do with makeup. <clears throat> cosmological argument, and there are several things we can look at there, but here's just a couple of ideas. Uh, a lot of scientists believe the universe is expanding. It's still, it's still growing. If that's true, if that's true, if we assume that this has always been the case, then we go back in the past, we get to a singular point in space and time. In other words, uh, in, in other words, the, the universe is expanding means that at some point in the past, the universe did not exist. And then it came into existence. Well, logically, everything in our world has a cause. Everything in our world has a cause. If, if the ground is wet outside, it didn't just happen. You think maybe it's raining or maybe the youth are having a water balloon war or something, but there's a cause. There's a reason why there's water on the ground. So nothing can't cause something. There must exist something beyond the natural world then. This something is thereby supernatural, above nature, or simply what we would call God. All right? Continuing along in, in another cosmological argument, the universe, our universe, is finely tuned. What I mean by that is that everything is just right, especially on our planet, to support uh, life. The sun is just the right size and just the right distance from Earth. The atmosphere and the weather, the climate, everything here is just right. The tilt of the Earth, the pull of the moon, the orbit of the Earth, all of these things are just right. They're finely tuned to support life on our planet. If any of these things are off by just a fraction of a margin, just a small margin, then the earth will be too cold or too hot or too something to support life. Cosmological argument. You, you could talk about God. You could talk about the existence of God in that way. Then there's a biological argument. That is, the human body. It's an incredible machine. The operating system is hardwired into our DNA which contains all the information to develop, maintain, and sustain a human life. I, I'm blown away by this, and, and as I think about human, uh, as I think about infants, and, and I think about just pregnancy, and uh, there's just a couple of cells, and then they start dividing and multiplying the, these cells, and at some point, at some point, something says, hey, we need some bone cells, and then something else says, we need muscle tissue, and they say, well, we need to gather up and form a heart. Well, at some point, these cells, they say, we need eyelashes and everything in between. And we look at that and say, randomly, we got all this. No, there's information there. Where does this organized information come from? Is it just random? Nope. It points to an intelligent source that is above and beyond nature. 
Then there's this, also this idea, so not just humans, but there's this idea called irreducible complexity. That is to say that there are some things, there are some organisms, and even some systems in our world that you can't reduce them down anymore. They are, they are complex, and, and you can't reduce them down anymore without things falling apart. And, and these systems, they can't exist without everything that's there. The flowers get pollinated by the bees, birds, and butterflies as you pull these things away. So they all had to come into existence together. They didn't just, it, it, it didn't, we just didn't have flowers for thousands of years or millions of years, and then all of a sudden a bee popped up out of nowhere. That's not the way that it works. Irreducible complexity. But my favorite, my favorite is a moral argument for the existence of God. C.S. Lewis lays this out really well in Mere Christianity. Basically, he says this, we may disagree over the specifics of what is right and wrong, but we do agree that right and wrong exists. You don't have to look far. You just look at Washington, D.C. the last couple of weeks, and you will see this. Everybody's got a different opinion about what's right and what's wrong, but everybody has an opinion that there are some things that are right, and there are some things that are wrong. And he says that just the idea that we can have a conversation about right and wrong means that there's some universal moral lawgiver. I love this. I love this idea. Everyone has an opinion that some things are right and some things are wrong. C.S. Lewis says, he goes on to say that just having the conversation or a concept of morality points to a universal morality giver. In other words, to God. Something that is over and above nature. Now, I didn't really want to camp out a long time here today, but I thought these were important to talk about. Hey, for me, I trust God's word. I understand he's the creator of the universe of all things. But if you're having a conversation with someone that says, well, I can't trust God's word, where do you go from there? And this was, man, that was brief. You can go a lot farther with it. You can, go, you, you, you can investigate and, and get a lot more information, and I would encourage you to. But look, verse 24, God is creator of the universe. This is the first thing that Paul proclaims. And if he is the personal creator of everything, doesn't it make sense? To me, it just logically flows that he's also Lord over everything that he made. It just seems logical to me. It's the next step. And so therefore, he says, it's absurd to think that God needs a temple built by human hands. It's absurd to think that he needs a temple built by human hands. He doesn't reside there. Let's move on. What else does he say? Verse 25. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he gives himself, uh, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. God is the sustainer of life. So he's the creator of the universe. He is also the sustainer of life. We depend on God. He does not depend on us. My uh, dad had this license plate that he used to have on the front of our conversion van. It said this, the Lord giveth and the government taketh away. <laughs> but listen, God is independent of us. He's independent of anything, of everything, and he is totally self-sufficient. Sometimes I hear people say, God needs, and then whatever comes next, I usually ignore because I know God doesn't need, God doesn't need you. He wants you. God doesn't need you to share the gospel. He wants you to share the gospel. God could, God could do anything he wants to, but I think to me that even shows his love even more. He doesn't need me as part of his kingdom, but he wants me to be there. God doesn't need anything, and so God's not dependent upon us. We are totally dependent upon God. He is the sustainer of life. 
let's keep going. Uh, I just read verse 25, and part of this will be there, but let's look at 26 through 28. From one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and exist. Look, God, not only is he created the universe and sustainer of life, God is also ruler of all nations. He had ordained certain aspects of history and allowed certain powers to rise and to fall so that, did you, did you catch that? They would seek him. So that they would seek him. One of the questions that is so often asked, why do bad things happen? Why is there evil in the world? And in some instances, what we see here is so that we turn back to God. We've gotten too far away, and that calls us back to the Lord. Listen, just recently, I was able to watch for the very first time a speech given by Tony Dungy. Tony Dungy was a uh, was an NFL football player and a coach, and as far as I know, he's the, he's, the only, he's the only person to win a Super Bowl as a player, an assistant coach, and a head coach. I might be wrong on that. You can fact check me, and I will submit to your fact check. But uh, Tony Dungy... Uh, was standing before the, the Super Bowl uh, breakfast. I don't know, I assume it was a prayer breakfast because he was freely talking about God. But he was, he was sharing something about one of his sons. One of his sons was born with something called congenital insensitivity to pain. And he says, when you first hear that, you may think, that's pretty cool. I could get a spanking and it wouldn't hurt. But he says, it's, it's very, very serious because in his son's mind, and he said this, he says, Cookies taste great, and cookies, they're not harmful. You eat a chocolate chip cookie, that's wonderful. In his mind, if it's good on the plate, hey, it might even be better in the oven. And you open it up, you don't even feel that there's pain. You reach in to the oven, and you don't know your hands are burning. And you eat this hot, melted cookie, and it burns your mouth. He said and he didn't know because he didn't feel the pain. He didn't know that he was hurting. And he said he, said, he goes to the playground. And all kids love to slide down the slide. And if it's fun to slide down the slide, it ought to be equally fun to jump off the top of the slide. He has no pain receptors. He said, and what we've come to learn, he says, is this. With pain, you learn what's harmful. And you learn to fear the right things. Sometimes God allows pain in our lives to steer us away from things that would be more harmful and to turn us back to him. Listen, Psalm 34, 17 and 18 says, The righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Sometimes when that pain comes our way, it's to draw us back to God. and He hears the cries of those who are brokenhearted. God allows and even ordains painful circumstances sometimes. But he is near. He's not distant. And if you seek him with your whole heart, you will find him. So God's creator of the universe. He's the sustainer of life. God is ruler of all nations. And lastly, God is father of humans. Now listen, he talks about God. He talks about the offsprings. I, want to be, I just want to be clear here. In redemptive terms, when we talk about God as our father, when we're talking about being redeemed and having salvation, only those who are in Christ... Only those who are in Christ, by, the, by, by God's grace and by being adopted into the family, 
in redemptive terms, only those are his children. But when we're thinking in creative terms, he's the father of all humankind. It's his offspring that receive life. Like I said earlier, he breathed into man life. And we are, we are all descendants. We're all descendants of Adam and Eve. And so in creation terms, just like he's talking about here, uh, we, we, uh, we are his offspring. He's our father. Now, with these four points, with these four points, he addressed the Epicureans and the Stoics. God is creator of the universe, which means he's not pantheistic and in the universe. And he's a sustainer of life. God is a ruler of all nations, which means, hey, he's not some, some distant, far out there God. He is close. He's near to the brokenhearted. He does take, he does take concern with the personal affairs of humans. He's your father. He loves you. He cares for you. But if we're not careful, idolatry can take on, well, it, it can take on many different forms. There are at least four that are recognized here. Four different forms of idolatry. I want to read to you a passage from, uh, or a portion of a commentary by, by John Stott. And he, he outlines for us, he says that idolatry it's an attempt. Idolatry is an attempt to, to place God or move God in a certain way. Let me, just, let me just read this for you. Whether the images are metal or mental, material objects of worship or unworthy concepts in the mind, idolatry is the attempt either to, one, localize God, that is confining him within limits which we impose, whereas actually he is the creator of the universe, or to domesticate God, making him dependent on us, taming him and taping him, whereas he's the sustainer of human life, or to alienate God, that is blaming him for his distance and his silence, whereas he is the ruler of nations and not far from any of us, or to dethrone God, that is demoting him to some image of our own contrivance or craft, whereas he is our father from whom we derive our being. In brief, all idolatry tries to minimize the gulf between the creator and his creatures in order to bring him under our control. More than that, it actually reverses the respective positions of God in us so that instead of our humbly acknowledging that God has created and rules us, we presume to imagine that we can create and rule God. There's really no logic in idolatry. And Paul addresses these. Paul addresses these in how he speaks to the Epicureans and the Stoics. And he addresses their idolatrous beliefs and their idolatrous behavior. And he, he addresses them by explaining to them who God actually is. Who up until this point had been unknown to them. But it was said that Paul has proclaimed that God is creator of the universe. He's sustainer of life. He is ruler of all nations. He's the father of humans. He goes on to say this. However, God is also judge of the world. Look at verse 30 through 31. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day 
when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed, he has provided, uh, he has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. God is a judge of the world. It will be universal. It says he will judge the world. It will be righteous because it will judge him with his, with, it will be his justice which he executes. Uh, and it will be definite. That is, the day has been fixed, and there's a man that's been appointed as the righteous judge over all. God is judge of the world. So he says this. Repent. It's a call to repentance. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. Repent. And you can escape judgment that we've just talked about. You can escape judgment through him who has been resurrected. Now, it's interesting. A lot of people have a complaint, the fact that he doesn't talk about Jesus crucified in this sermon. Well, remember, too, that this is Luke writing this down. And so I surmise that it's a summary. It's not a word-for-word documentation. He didn't take out his tape recorder or his uh, iPhone and record this sermon. But he's, 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 he's writing this down later. And this, you can't really talk about a resurrection unless you talk first about a death. That wouldn't make any sense, okay? He talks about the resurrection. I'm going to assume everything else I know about Paul, that he told him that Jesus was crucified. That's just, that doesn't make any sense. But an unknown God. Remember what I said that a lot of times there's an unknown God and it could be true for those outside the church as well as for those within the church. And so I wonder, do we have unknown gods or idols? Because I don't think, I haven't been in all of your homes, but for most of us, we don't have little shrines in our homes that we burn incense to and we pray to. So I, I, I just, just had a feeling that that's not the case inside your homes. But is that, is that the only way that we have idols? I don't believe so. We have ourself, have money, maybe our position in, in the world or in our company, popularity, our family, uh, our kids, our spouse, our jobs, a hobby. What do, we, what do we place as a substitute for God? What do we place to bring us, where do we look to for fulfillment, for satisfaction, for hope, for joy? Where do, we, where do we spend our time, our energy, our, our money? How do we, what do we spend our resources on? Or just is it, a, is it a misconception of God? It's an unknown God because it's a misconception of God. We, we think we know God. And I love the way that J.D. Greer says, you don't get your own personal Jesus. Like you can't just, it's the Jesus of the Bible. You can't just say, well, my Jesus believes this or wouldn't do that or what. It's, no, just. We all have the same Jesus. It's the one of the Bible. You don't get to pick and choose what you like and don't like about what God's Word says. Well, look, right now, I, I think there's this, this misconcept of, of God, and, and, and we're still kind of working it out in our, a lot of our church leaders in our country. They're, they're, they're debating the role of the church in society right now. And, and, and I think most people are, are somewhere in the middle, but, man, on, on one side, of, it seems like there's a couple of extremes, as there is the case with almost any ideology. But on one side, it seems we have leaders that are calling for mercy and, and humility, the alleviation of pain and suffering in our world, even those caused by generations that are now long dead. 
and that there should be no discussion of judgment or no plea for repentance, that God's not concerned about your heart, your soul, but only your comfort while here, while, while here on earth. So that may be one side. If that's one side, then the other side seems like it's uh, that there's no compassion, that, that heaven's the only thing that really matters, and God doesn't care about your, his physical creation or the lives of the people within it. Hey, as long as you go to heaven when you die, we really shouldn't be concerned if you have to go through hell while you're here on earth. It seems that that's the case. It's what it, it's what it appears like if, and, and there's two ends. And here's the deal. It's not either or, it's both and. We should be concerned with the well-being of people here on earth as well as their eternal life and their heart condition. James 1.27 says this, Pure and undefiled religion is to care for the orphans and widows and keep oneself unstained by the world. We are to care for the needy, but we are also to abstain from sin by turning to Jesus. James says we do both. We don't get to choose one over the other. We do both. We're concerned with the heartbreak that people feel, but we also are concerned with the heart that's full of sin that needs Jesus. Micah 6, 8 says, He has shown you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? What does the Lord require of you to do justly? to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. We extend a hand to help bring people up and, and, and to, to help people out of their condition, but we also extend the gospel message that they may turn in repentance and come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And my prayer for you today, my prayer for me, my prayer for Northside today, is that we, each and every one of us, will see God for who he really is. In all of his majesty, in all of his holiness, and that his glory would fall upon us. We see God for who he really is, and he's not unknown to us anymore. And then we turn and we repent from our sins, and we experience his love, his mercy, and his grace. May God's glory fall upon you. And I hope today, I hope today you can be like Moses. He went up on top of the mountain and he saw God he saw God for who he really was you're going to see God face to face and you meet with him can you know can you say I know the Lord and he knows me can you say that today he's not unknown to me I know him and because I know him I am compelled to go and make him known among the people of this world. Along the way, I'm going to extend mercy. I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to do justly. And I'm going to walk humbly with my God. Father, thank you for, thank you just for who you are. God, thank you for your mercy and your grace. Thank you that we can call you Emmanuel, that you're with us. God, thank you also that because I've been adopted as one of your sons, you've given me the same spirit that was in Jesus Christ, and by that spirit, I can cry out to you just as he did, Abba, Father. You're not some distant God that's way off. But God, you, you're concerned with your children. You are close to the brokenhearted, and you hear our cries. So God, may we extend mercy, extend grace, and extend the truth of the gospel that we need to repent. They go hand in hand. May we be a church 
that operates this way. Father, I don't know exactly the heart condition of everyone in this room, but I pray if there's anybody here who says, maybe I don't know God. He's unknown to me. I know about him, but I don't know him. Lord, I pray today will be the day of salvation. You lead, may we respond. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I would ask if you would stand now, and the Lord may be leading you any number of ways. If it's a call to repentance for the very first time, to come and know him, and I would love to walk with you through that, to come to saving faith and knowledge of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you want to join our church, come, and we'll talk about what that looks like. Um, or, or maybe you just want somebody to uh, pray with. Uh, I'd love to pray with you. The altar is open as well. Uh, as the Lord leads, as the Lord leads, you follow. Let's sing. you guys to, to be seated for just a minute. I want to uh, introduce a family to you, though you probably, many of you already already know them. Uh, before I do that, I just want to make mention real quick that um, this coming week, the, the kitchen will be cleaned out, and that is like, if, it, if, if it's there and it doesn't belong, it will be out. And so if you have something that you think might be in there in yours, you might want to get it. Uh, so make sure that you take care of that. And then, uh, as we continue, uh, just make sure that we keep it clean, and so let's don't leave let's not leave things just stacked in there and, and, and out of place, and don't leave dirty dishes and that kind of thing. We want to make sure it's clean so it's ready to use anytime that we need it. Um, but I do want to uh, introduce uh, Scott and Carrie Stroud to you. They've completed our new members class and are uh, seeking to join uh, join our church by statement uh, and and letter from another church, uh, sister church, and then their. Uh, they're girls, Mackenzie and Kennedy and London, right? Get that right? Good. All right. And so I would just ask if, um, uh, you know, if, if you want to, if you'll welcome this new family as a part of our, as, as part of our church family, let me hear by a good amen. amen. And, uh, and I'm not even going to ask if you don't want to, because they will have a talk we're after that. But, um. But as, as, as part of, uh, as part of our, our newest church family here, uh, you're, you'll be assigned a, a deacon. Uh, and so our deacon of the week this week is Kevin Ingram, and so he'll be your deacon. And so I'm just going to ask him if you'll come on up this way, Kevin, and um, he'll, he'll close us out in a word of prayer. And then you all come by and, and greet the Strouds and welcome them as, as part of our church family, even though it feels like you've been here for a while already. So, all right, Kevin. All right. 